Number ones. You guys are number one. I mean, you can't beat that on the Enneagram, right? People say I'm a nine, I'm an eight. You say, yeah, I'm, all, I'm number one, you know? <laughs> well, so let me just, let me explain the one real briefly and then, um, and then we'll jump in. The one early on received of a message that being good uh, was very important. It was the way that the one felt good about itself and felt loved by uh, those in authority, those in positions of power, but that were connected to the one. So for example, a teacher or a parent. And in ones in general, never wanted to, to do anything bad, never is just genuinely a, a desire to do good. But that message of good girls, good boys are the ones that get loved, that don't get into trouble, that don't get rejected. Uh, it, it, that, that message came in early and the one began to really focus in. I mean, again, this is the Enneagram believes or many teachers in the, of the Enneagram believe that this is not just nurture. This is nature. This is genetic. This is born. You're born that way. I actually believe that a family of five kids and three of us were raised the exact same way. All three of us are completely different, have completely different reactions. So there are things that are very unique about us. So the one definitely, uh, you know, is, is wanted to do good, wanted to do the right things. And so that attention then goes towards what are the things within me that could possibly be bad or produce bad things or, or bad actions, bad behavior, uh, bad thoughts. Uh, emotions, that, that's, that's one of the areas, one of the possible areas. So the emotions tend to get uh, a little bit, you know, pushed down. And uh, so ones tend to have more of a even killed approach to life. That's anyways, the, the way that it comes across to other people, even if the one's not feeling that internally, that's how it's displayed. And the one becomes uh, really aware of, of instincts and appetites and, and works against those things. Like those things need to be tamed or controlled or or somehow reframed in a way that I justify it, you know? So ones can, can justify behaviors by saying, well, it was because of this and that reason. And so there's a justification process that goes on there. Excellent workers, conscientious, fastidious, uh, detail-oriented. Uh, the attention goes immediately to what is right and wrong in most situations in life. They have a fantastic ability at picking out imperfections and actually having a solution, not just pointing it out, but actually being able to come up with a solution to, to fix those things. They're driven oftentimes by an inner critic, a strong inner critic. All of us have a, a critic uh, internally, but the one has it probably stronger than the other types where that's, it's always chirping. It's always talking, always showing them how they can improve. They're self-improvers. Ones are, are called reformers because they, they, man, when they cut loose and they're, uh, they're, they're healthy, they can really bring about amazing changes uh, globally. I mean, some of our, some of the reformers of the world have been ones, but that inner critic drives that one to do better and it's never good enough. So even if someone says that's a great job, the one isn't necessarily looking unlike maybe twos. Um, it's not looking out to see, what do you think of me? It's what's in me that's telling me this is right and this is wrong. And they're often driven more by that. We're back to the body type. We're back to the type that uh, processes life more through action. Mm -hmm. I am what I do. And oftentimes dealing with anger um, or resentment in the case of the one. So anyways, I've given a description, but you're the ones. So you know your type. And I'd love to hear from you if that resonates with you and how that displays itself in your life. I think anger and resentment are, are big emotions. 
And I, if I watch somebody else and, or I think they should have gotten it right, then I feel angry. Why didn't they get it right? So this is the, this is the ridiculous part about it. But I am a horrible grammar critic. And if people, people use bad grammar on TV, it drives me up a wall. And I want to shout at the TV and say, you can't say I should have went. It's I should have gone. What is wrong with you? And so this inner critic is all the time thinking it is not That's okay awesome. in the world if you use bad grammar. And I don't, that is so stupid. I know it, but it still makes me nuts. And so I'm constantly criticizing everything. Yeah, it's really. And um, when we were on staff at the vineyard um, in Boston a few years ago, there were several ones on staff. We were all very different from each other. But um, <clears throat> one thing we kind of laughed about was about style. And um, that was when people, women, a lot were wearing really short tops and really low, you know, pants. And so um, we would, this one other woman and I was particularly, we talked about, I really don't like it if somebody wears this and they really have a lot of flesh and stomach hanging out because they think we don't want to see that. So that's not okay. So we're judging that. But then if a girl comes along the street and she's a perfect figure and she's showing off, you think you need to cover up. You're just showing off. So you cannot win with the one because it's never <laughs> quite right. So that's, mm. that's a kind of judgment. We're always judging everything. It, it kind of gets old. Oh, I'm trying to think. Um, I think from a younger age, I like secretly inside my head felt like I was such a sort of keen but manipulative person because I very much had my own standard of what I thought was right and wrong. And the question wasn't about fulfilling what everyone else wanted. It was doing it enough so that I could do what I wanted because that's what I thought was right. So the way that some of this played out was, you know, I really enjoyed doing music a lot. And I, it's something that's extremely time consuming. And I would be at church or locked away somewhere. Um, I lived in a very small house with six people. And the hours that I kept, even in high school and middle school, was I would come home from school. I would sleep from four to about six, have dinner, go back to sleep, get up at midnight, and I would be up from midnight to four. And this was a schedule that I kept. And partially it was because that was the time that I could find, you know, to be alone and to do the thing that I wanted to do and um, play guitar and kind of have my own mind space. And as crazy as it sounded to everyone else in the room, if I brought home the A, like, really, can you say anything? Like, is it really so bad? Because you're getting what you want, which is, you know, somebody who is outwardly successful because I'm getting the marks that I'm supposed to get. And I'm doing what I want to do, which is really where I want to, you know, kind of shunt off all of my time and energy. And this is the way that I sort of sorted out how to like work the system and still like do what I want to do, which is what's ultimately most important. But I want to look like I'm successful to everyone else. So I have to have the marks uh, in order to justify the other things that I want to do. Mm. So I am not very good at this. Um, when I was little, um, I always had to get A's. Um, if I didn't do well enough um, or I just took a really long time, I was in tears. Um, and then I would just beat myself up. Uh, even decluttering my house these days, one of the things, uh, my mantra is, it's really impossible and I look at it and I'm overwhelmed and I don't want to do it is um, sloppy success beats perfect failure. And so even though I may not do it perfect, um, I still need to do it. 
at work, I can be tediously doing my notes, patient charts, and not, I could spend hours trying to make them perfect. Um, I'm learning that I just don't care and I need to move on um, because life just, I mean, the list and everything goes on and on and on and having fun just doesn't always happen when you have tons of things that you need to make right. Okay. Um, Well, when I was born, um, two years after I was born, my older brother, whom I don't remember because I was only two, but he died and uh, shot down all the South China sheets right at the end of the war. And so my parents are really sad. And I don't know where you get your type. Like you said, maybe it's already in there. But since this, I know, I know scientists now say, too, if there's any trauma, it wasn't directly to me, but it was in the house. Mm-hmm. And I know I've heard mm-hmm. stories from my, uh, my brother, who was co- closer to the age of uh, my brother, Bill, who died, but that my mother was crying all the time. And my dad's, I don't know. I don't think he started drinking then, but later in life, he did. Um, to some extent, never at home, but... Um, <clears throat> yeah, he didn't come home when I was in high school for dinner. Sometimes my mom would just make light of it and say, okay, we'll just put it in the oven and he'll be back and that kind of stuff. So, but even as a kid, I, I think I internalized something thinking I've, I've got to make it right or I've got to get it right. And it was more like, I've got to get it right. But I didn't realize until I was an adult that I thought all this stuff, but that's how I was acting. So I was going to be the one to get, <clears throat> I didn't get as good a grade as you, but I got good <laughs> grades and I tried to be good and um, make my parents happy. And I think, I think through prayer, um, a session once with someone, I realized, and she said to me, so you're trying to be a savior. And I was trying to be their savior by getting it right. But I, of course, you can't get it right. And it didn't work because it didn't ever really end. Even when I was grown and married, I could tell they still had this, they never had things, grief group to people then where you could go and talk about it, process it and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But um Anyway, so I think that that was in me, like, I've got to get it right. And then I went to another uh, place called Healing for the Nations one time. And, and that's where I think I really realized, oh, even if I got it right, which I can't, it's not in my power. And it was ridiculous. I think it's something in our head thinks we've got to get it right, but we don't have the power to get it right. That's the other thing that, you know, mm-hmm. beginning to realize I can't do it. And so just that sense of disappointment, I could never really make it okay for them. Talk about the um, talk about the inner critic. Um, yeah. All types have inner critics, but the ones uh, that I've talked with say um, that it is it is constant, and it's not always a bad one. One one said to me, "It's actually I don't really mind it as much because it actually makes me a better, you know, software engineer, yeah, and okay. you know, I become really good at it, you know, and successful." But talk about that if you would. The inner critic um, never lets up. And the question that nags at you all the time is, am I ever going to be good enough? Or I'm not good enough. Or am, am I good enough? So the answer is, no, we're not good enough. <laughs> but to have to face that is really terrible because then, and I think that's what I saw when I went to this thing called Healing for the Nations, was that I can't get it right. Mm-hmm. But that's just a, a lie that was in my head. If you can get it right, things will, the world will be better. And I think the thing for ones is that the world should be just, things should be fair. And when it's not, you're constantly <laughs> disappointed. So I think wow. we're always disappointed because even when it goes well, and even if you got a good grade, it's never enough because the something- You feel like you're feeding the beast yeah. of the inner critic. Even if you get it right, the mm-hmm. more you serve it, the more it seems to 
Okay, so was it Tuesday night? We had our uh, we have a group that we co-lead with another woman. It's called the Compassionate Friends, and it's for parents of lost kids or um, or if you've lost a sibling or a grandchild. So I led the meeting the other night. I had some great ideas. I must say, got that right. Um, I had these uh, ideas, and actually, the whole meeting went really well. I even thought the ending was okay. But as we went home on bus, Chuck and I were talking. He said, "The only thing is, at the end, you know." The guys talked a little bit long. And if you'd modeled the thing, if you'd said out loud, give it a one sentence summary of your takeaway for the evening, then we would have ended right on time. And we did it. And that's what I thought about for the rest of the night, no matter how good this whole meeting was. And everybody was saying, Mary Ann, it was so good. You always did such a good job. And somebody, when they left, oh, that was so good. And blah, 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 all this stuff. So, but then I thought, but I didn't get it right. It wasn't yeah. enough. Yeah. It's never enough. However, the thing, one thing is that I realized today in thinking this over because I wanted to get it right for tonight. I got all my stuff on the, <laughs> I got all the information because years ago, our church was really into this and our son, Andrew, kind of led the charge on this. And so he had asked us to speak like for just five minutes on your type and what do you like about your type? What do you don't like? What have you learned? What is God showing you? All these kinds of questions. So I kind of looked at those today. Then it was something, what have you learned about God? And I thought, oh. God does not hold me to that because I'm not mm. perfect. I'll never be perfect. And none of us are perfect. So he doesn't hold us to the standard that we hold to ourselves. And that is really, I mean, I don't always operate that. I go back to my thing, but just knowing that is wonderful. He, he's the savior. He saves us from all these inner voices. And, you know, mm. when we choose to think about it or let go mm. or let him do it, I don't know. That's just what I yeah. think. I, I've known this in my head, having that kind of, get into every part of my daily life is a process. I actually feel like you have to talk yourself off of ledges a lot and talk about uh, who created you and did you really create messed up stuff? And do you really, did you really try well? And um, I can actually see a lot of that in my daughter. And so working through that with her and saying, you know what, I think that's okay. Like, yeah. you don't have to be perfect. Yeah. Mm. She wants to be. Mm -hmm. mm. And I know she could be, or yeah. <laughs> she could do yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Or what, did, what were you really thinking? What did you do? <laughs> like, and I critique it all, and then I'm like, oh, that's all right, fine. Did you try your best? Good. But the one, so maybe speak to this too, but you're not, you're not trying... This is one of the things that sometimes get is a misconception with people who interact with ones is the belief that you're being critical, you're being judgmental. Um, when what I've heard from other ones, maybe you, you can speak to this, is that you actually see it as I'm giving you a gift. I'm actually helping you. And I can, if you do this, it will actually be better. Is that true? Do you feel like that's what you're doing? But but do you feel that miss that, that sometimes people misunderstand that and take it as as criticism or as judgment? Of course. Yeah. People don't like being told what to do. Yeah. Fortunately, I get paid to do that every day. <laughs> you get permission to do it. That's wonderful. It, it <laughs> you have found a good one job. <laughs> it is a good one job. Yeah. I'm a PA, so I get to tell people how to take care of their bodies that they don't want to take care of. So yeah, yeah. There's like so much in there. I think that at least like at this present day moment, I think the way that I have manipulated my brain to be able to move forward 
is to not necessarily think about perfection in terms of landing, like in a state of perfection, but now the catharsis is currently, but I, I want to be in process. Like there's a perfect process um, instead of a landing. Cause you know, at some point I realized, okay, I can't be perfect. So that can't be the goal. Um, I was a classical pianist and music is one of those weird things where, you know, I always say there's two constants in music. You know, you're either in time or you're not, you're either in tune or you're not like you hit the right note or you don't, you know, the meter is right or it's not. It's a very black and white thing on a certain level. And somehow you're also trying to express something beyond the notes that are on the page that are preset for you. And so it's this weird, it's weird relationship with music. Um, but I always remember placing second, second, second. And at some point I was like, forget this, you know, I'm never going to be perfect. So I'd rather, and I look back and I'm like, oh, that's weird. That's a weird way of giving up, you know, um, a skill. And so, but so now it's become, well, there's a perfect process. And I was just telling Jim today that um, I have this weird fear that like, what if this is like the best that it's going to be? Like this moment, like what if there's nothing, what if there's no other evolution? You know, what if there's no other improvement of my mind or the process of being whole in Christ? Or what if there, what if there is no other movement or, or motion in my relationships and friendships? Like the thought of like stagnation is like horrifying to me. And it's not necessarily at this point, like quantifying something. Um, it's not like a specific quantity, but it is a feeling of, I, I want to be in process. I want to get better. The world can be better. We can be better. And so learning how to uh, like intersect this with God and, and sometimes being better means you don't have, you don't get to do anything and how to sit in that moment and be like, I think I'm getting better, but I don't know. I don't have any tangible way of knowing, but I hope I'm getting better. Um, and it's just that weird, like cathartic sort of conversation in your mind of better, more efficient. It's like the efficiency thing at work. It's always, how can I get more done? How can I do this in fewer steps? You know, and I'm always telling my younger brother, just do it this way. Trust me, I've tried it all the other ways. And he still wants to like go through the process. And then he lands in the one that I told him to do. And I'm like, if he just would have done it, you wouldn't have been wasting all this time, you know? But he's an individualist. So he's like, no, I'm going to figure it out. You know, it's like crashing heads all the time. So, yeah. Well, I thought of something. So for a few years, when we were on staff in our church, we oversaw the prayer team and uh, we did trainings for the prayer team. And um, it was great. We have four teams and they pray with a different team each Sunday and all this stuff. So we have these, uh, when we do the teachings, we have these things we really want them to do. Okay, so, but then I'm always wanting them to do it perfectly. But then the God reminds me, hey, these are all people who love God. They have a heart to pray. A lot of them are twos. <laughs> they want to help everybody. And, and they're volunteers. And so this is great that we have this, that we, that we pray for people at all. So that's God telling me, you know, just lighten up a little bit. But I want them to get it right. I want them to get it right. I want them to use everything that we said. And, you know, so then when I think about it, I get kind of uptight. I say, oh, I think they prayed way too long because the lines were back there and they should they're supposed to be paying attention. So this is, this is the bad part about being a perfectionist because I think it'd be better if, 
Of course, I'm not allowing for God and his spirit to work in here. Maybe he's not following the rules because I don't really think the Holy Spirit necessarily follows rules all the time. In fact, I know he doesn't, So, because, but, but he does good stuff. Okay, so I'm just saying that this is kind of a thing where I go back and forth. It's like, oh, this is right, and that's right, and that isn't right. They're taking too long, or they're praying with their eyes shut when they don't know that this other person is bawling their eyes out because they've got their, you know, just all this criticism. So this is the kind of stuff that I struggle with because I want them to get it right. Mm-hmm. Because somehow I believe that things would be better. But it's, so it's kind of stupid. But I'm just saying that's where, that's the tension. Like when you know that what's a good thing and you want to follow it. I love it because ones could even help God out. I know. That's right. just, just, <laughs> if God would just do it this way, then, you know. It's it's better. True confession. That is so. It's so awesome to hear from you guys. I mean, it's just like the the uh, the awareness of self awareness here is is remarkable. Like you you see it functioning within you, and yet at the same time, I can hear that sort of. And and yet, when you get to the place of things would be if they would just do it right, things would be even better. Even better. But yet it's, it's, it's hard to even quantify what that would be. Is that true for you? Is it sort of like it would be better, but, but that's almost getting into the analytical space because there's something more visceral that's driving that system, it sounds to me. Like, am I picking up on that? Is there, do you have a picture? I mean, in some cases, maybe you do have a picture of this is what it should look like and this would be perfect. But even if it got to that, what then? Can you answer that question? What would then be the result? So redecorating the house. My husband does not really understand redecorating the house because I can't verbalize it. And I only see when it's perfect when I see it. And Mm -hmm. he doesn't want to put a nail on the wall. And so he won't do it. And so we go back and forth trying to get it just right. And but I don't know until I see it. And so I'll have to move stuff around and like, until it's perfect. And then when I see it, it's perfect. And I know it's perfect. Sometimes he does it when I'm not there and then I can't really hide the holes. So I've got lots of holes. So it seems like, so maybe you can speak to this and, and take it further. Like there, I'd love to hear more about the rules piece because okay? ones are known as, as so, you know, rule followers or rule keepers. But yet there's also a part of the one that says, I know when the rule is wrong. And I will confront that rule when it is wrong, and I will point that out. So for some types, it's really, I know what to do because it's been told to me what to do, and then I execute the job. The ones seem, and so what I'm hearing from you, is there's also this very strong internal awareness of what right and wrong is that comes from within, as well as perhaps from outside of you. Maybe you can talk about that. The, the where does that, so are you a rule follower? And if so, um, and you also know how to break them or which ones should be broken, right? Um, you're not afraid of that. You will still point that out. So is it an internal thing for you? Is that morality and internal morality? Um, part of the church, I think the church world tends to bring a sort of oneness, one culture to sort of the rules, particularly in some um um, more fundamentalist traditions where right and wrong is, you know, you got to follow the right and the wrong. And um, so maybe talk about where that comes from for you. 
I'm trying to organize all those questions in my mind into a coherent, efficient response. You know, when, I, <laughs> when I type, when I type a one, that's what they do. When I would do a typing interview with a one, the question, if I ask a question, the one will say, what do you mean by that? Right. So it's like, it's, again, it's really getting, you, you see so many different yeah. Right. It's the, well, how do I most efficiently answer what I think you're really asking surrounding all of the questions that you're circling around? Yeah. So, uh, where I've decided to land <laughs> yeah. is um, there's definitely a very strong intuition piece for me personally. I feel like I've always been extremely, I, I, I would call it a, a healthy aversion to authority. <laughs> um, <laughs> Very, very, you know, inquisitive mind. So you can imagine being Asian, being female in a very authoritarian, mm -hmm. uh, especially church environment where it's very hierarchical, having a healthy, inquisitive mind and asking questions that people don't want to answer, yeah. especially when you're talking about God and religion. Um, it's not a fun place to be, but there's just something that's always mm -hmm. nagging um, about either a stream of logic or a presentation of something, information about people, um, it's just something like, I feel like I'm constantly reading, reading things that I don't understand that I'm reading. Um, I think it's part of the efficiency thing. I think it's part of, um, for me personally, like a drive to want to, it's the, what do you mean? Like, how do I communicate? Like, how do I like get what's in my mind and, and, and make it as, you know, like as precise as possible to bring about, you know, um, understanding because understanding equals better evolution, uh, you know, things like that. And so definitely like there's, there's just a strange, like yeah, intuitive feeling of, Oh, there's something missing. This doesn't quite make sense. And I can't put mm. words to it, but I, I know that there's something mm. missing. And, um, for me, like when I talk about being so obsessed with process, um, as I mentor a lot of young adults, I don't know. It's just one of those things where I, there's this intuitive sense of, that's it. Like it's, it's, it's a spark. It's something that I see like when information is like connecting or when something's being unlocked. So it's not that I have a predisposed end game for this specific person, but it's more of a, a state of wanting to see a, a self-awareness or um, a connection that works for them. And so for me, it's the efficiency of how do I get them to connect with themselves, to connect with their situation so that they can be better. Right. So Mm. That's how that sort of dialogue stream. But there's a lot of the yeah, others kind of, I don't know. I just know. And I don't know why I know. Okay. Or I question and I don't know why, but it just doesn't, I can't accept it. It's intuitive. Like, I it's, just can't do it. Yeah. yeah. I, I can't just take your word because you have letters behind your name and I'm supposed to. Like, it just doesn't work that way for right. me. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Good. So things are always, have always been black and white until Joel and my husband. Um, and now there's a lot more grace. Um, which is very unsettling, but um, welcome to the gray world. It's fun. I don't like gray. <laughs> I really don't. Um, but in general, I've always tried to figure out the rules so that I can get around them. Um, and I don't know if that's part of one or that's just part of me trying to go around authority. I, I don't know. Um, so my school said I couldn't have a tattoo that was visible. So I put one where people can't see it. Okay. I just have always figured out ways around. Whenever I am introduced to a new group or a new thing, I'm, I'm always observing, looking, asking questions, trying to figure out, okay, where are the rules? What are the rules? And how do I 
manage them. And I, I guess to some degree to figure out what's right and wrong. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to comment about was with my children, with disciplining, oftentimes um, they know what's right and wrong. And I'll put them in home out and then we'll, we'll kind of talk about it afterwards. And I may see right and wrong and I may discipline them for the right and wrong, but the motive behind it, oftentimes I'm like, well, why didn't you just tell me that's what you were really doing? Like, and so um, I am very strict to, very, I jump right into that was wrong. You don't, you don't do that to your brother. You don't do that to your sister. Um, and so I'm very quick to discipline, but then oftentimes I misconstrue it, but it seems black and white initially. Hmm. I'm thinking about a group we were part of many years ago when we first got married and we were in Campus Crusade for Christ International, but then we joined this Jesus, um, was back in the 60s, uh, at 70, early 70s. We got married in the late 60s, 70s. Okay, 70s. So, so um, the, it started out great. So I think I question authority because a lot of things that we were part of started out great and pure, and then they morphed into something else. And I think it's a very complex thing, but I think I have become slightly, well, I'm already judgmental to start with. I'm not slightly judgmental. I'm very judgmental, but um, just um, untrusting maybe of um, some authority and nobody's perfect. So that's the thing about it. One is you really are seeking perfection. You want perfection in leaders and, and authority, but nobody's perfect, right? And so to hold them to that is not really fair. I think I've learned that. But on the other hand, there's still something in there that when they, not crossing the line, but when there's something I think shouldn't say that, that's not okay. That's not okay for the pastor to stand in front and say that. That is, that should be kept for, I mean, that's his opinion and that's not okay to influence the group with this. Or yeah, our guy got had scruples, um, no scruples on spending everybody's money. It was a thing where you live in common. This was many, many, many years ago. And, and just a lot of stuff went on, but there was so much good and there was so much about Jesus and so much about connecting. I mean, there was so much of God, but yet there's also, this is kind of off the topic, I guess, but, but it was just um, also human nature that isn't perfect. And so I think, but for me, as a one, which I didn't know I was then, it's so disappointing because mm. you want mm. justice, truth, and fairness mm. as a one big time. Mm. So that is a huge disappointment. And I didn't have the capacity to just pardon that or say, oh, they're just, you know, mm. so <clears throat> that influenced, you know, my heart. And then I still have to realize years later, okay, I need to forgive so-and-so for that because God wants me to forgive them. So I'm free from the judgment. But as a one, you're kind of locked into a lot of judgment that keeps you hot. I think that keeps us captive. That's the down part of that. You know what I mean? So in one way, we can improve things because we have a drive uh, for, for truth and justice and stuff to be right. <laughs> but on the other hand, I don't know. It's just kind of... Mm. That yeah, at all? excellent. Yeah, thank you. Um, you did a great job. It was perfect. It was, it could not be improved on. Um, yeah, change the slide. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm feeling uncomfortable because I'm with ones and I'm not doing this right. So let's do this right. All right, here we go. 
So this is where ones go. So let's talk about the emotional part. Um, and ones tend to go from their body types. And so you heard a little bit from Sue in terms of the intuition that functions um, within. There's just a knowing. Um, ones will describe eight, eights, nines, and ones will describe this sort of knowing that comes from their gut, their internal sense. It's not an emotional knowing. It's not a head knowing. It's really more of a body knowing. Then oftentimes ones go to uh, to rationalizing like we all do in, in, in this country and in the developed West, we go to rationalizing it. So ones that I've talked with will say, yes, I go from this sense that I know what's right, but then I then rationalize it, justify it, you know, and, and do all this brain exercise to, to, make it, to make it right. But the work of the one is to deal with the emotional center as well, not to just leave that aside and go from body to, to head. So talk about the emotional processing. How does that working for you and, and how do you process emotions? Um, being that's one of the areas that tends to get tamped down by the one. I don't have the right answer, the right so I can't answer, start. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there's not too much to say. I don't like emotions and I stuff them. So. <laughs> I that was hate efficient. I, I, I hate Precise, them. Precise, efficient. Example. Why do you hate them? Example. They're messy. They cause irritable bowel. They cause pain in my back. They cause all these issues. That's funny. I never knew why my belly hurt every time I was about to go out on a date or something. And I'm like, what the heck is wrong with me? I'm excited. Like, why is my belly hurt? Mm-hmm. Like, it was crazy. Just emotions. I'm crying for no reason. It's sloppy. I need tissues. I, I hate, I hate it all. Like, and I love it. Yeah, I, I'm watching her engage the process. I'd rather be angry. I hate anger too, but I'd rather like go to anger and like get stuff done. Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> Pissed off, and I just want to do stuff. I don't know. I hate emotions. There you go. Here's my emotional. So fascinating. I love it. Emotions. Yeah, I definitely think that like I'll have an emotion reaction to something first, but immediately, yeah, it does go to like, why? How do I explain this? Like, how can I use this like to for something productive? And if I can't, you know, maybe just needs to go away, or I'm going to channel it into something else. So, um. Yeah, emotions are pretty complicated, but I feel like at the heart of like the, the the moodiness and stuff is there's like there's this like just out of reach picture of like what like dream, like this dream of like, wow, like if people are just like for me, it's like my my personal picture of heaven. It's like if everyone's like the best version of themselves and everyone is um not a perfect version, but like the best version. So like you can say something and Maybe I think it's offensive, but I have the capacity to be like, hey, did you mean that I heard it this way? Did you mean that? And having grace and then having someone say like, oh, no, like I just thought it was this. And then, you know what I mean? Like these kinds of conversations where people can just be themselves and like no one's, you know, getting triggered by this and that. And and this kind of picture of like, well, if this job doesn't work for you, like it's a big world. Can't we figure something else out? Like, can't you be happy? And isn't it okay if you change jobs? You know what? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like these examples of like quite like, like this, this sense of, of harmony with ourselves, harmony with God. And there's, there's just like, there's this dream and it's like just out of reach. And, and it's, and then it's the cathartic, like there are moments where I get so depressed because I'm like, I can't figure it out. I can't figure it out. God, 
help me figure this out, you know? Um, and there's this sense of not wanting to be seen as judgmental, as critical, as, you know, a negative person, but at, at the heart, heart of it is this, is this dreamer. There's like, there's this hope and there's this desire of, um, because better is not just better for me, but there's a bigger sense of there, mm. there is something better. Like there is a better out there, you know, for everyone, whether it's being just more healthy and you know, more whole, whatever it is, but it's that picture of if you're better, I can be better, you know, because I'm not an individual person. It's the, we're a whole system. And if the whole system gets better, like it's a good thing for everyone. Um, and so there is an idealism. There is a, a strange hopefulness. There's a, there's, there's the dreamer aspect of it and the constant like struggle of like, how do I parse this down? How do I figure out like how to do something tangible with it? And then sometimes the, the complete depression of, I don't know, like how to do this, but I know something exists. It's that nagging thing. Like I know something there and whether it's frustration, anger, because if you just worked a little bit harder, gosh, darn it. Like if you just worked, you know, if you just did this, like it would help. Like you're keeping yourself, it's a victim mentality. Stop Mm -hmm. doing that. You know, Um, you know, that type of like anger things or resentment that definitely comes about. Um, But there's definitely like, Sometimes it feels internally very much like a roller coaster ride of highs and lows, but on the exterior, it's like it's the logic, it's the ration, you know, that keeps everything looking like it's together on a certain level. <laughs> mm. I think expressing emotion is we all feel loads of emotions all the time, but I don't know that we, when we name them and it helps us experience them better. Mm. I think in the last few years when we were doing a class uh, for, I think we had called it several things. First, it was premarital class for people who were dating engaged. Then we, then we made a healthy relationship for couples. But anyway, at some point in one of the books, they had all these feeling words, negative ones and positive ones. And so um, we were put into pairs and then we had to come up with well, three things that you liked about um, your partner. And you had to say, when you do this, I feel that. When you, when you said this, I felt respected. When you did that, I felt loved. I felt proud of, or something. You know, to learn to say the ones, because fine is not very descriptive, and I'm fine. But I think for a one, I think the biggest emotions that you're in touch with is the anger, and the, for me, as a one, and the anger and the disappointment. But then also, just, okay, so anyway, going back to that is like, Learning to say, and for Chuck and me to hear this, even as we've been married many years, really helpful to try to name the thing and to start saying it to each other. So we just started doing that. That's a growth step, which is not, wouldn't be part of my type, you know, to just kind mm. of learn that. So that's a helpful thing. It doesn't come natural. It's, it's a little bit of work, but we're get, and at first it feels like, oh, this seems so silly to say this after being married all these years. But, you know, when you bring my tea up to me in the morning, it just makes me feel loved and respected or, you know, just something simple like that. But it's naming them and saying them is a helpful way to, to get in touch with mm-hmm. what are they? You have to find the word. And sometimes they're very descriptive uh, words to help you get in touch with your emotions. But I don't think growing up, my parents ever asked me actually how I felt about anything. You know, they just they just didn't talk, and I knew that they had great sadness, but they didn't express it very often. Or, or even if I got the picture of my brother out and said, "Let's put this picture out of Bill," and my mother'd say, "Yeah," I mean, she told me a couple of things about him. I'd ask her a question, she'd tell me, but then the picture would be gone a week later, and she put it away because she couldn't stand to look at it. You know, mm-hmm. and there's just so much unspoken 
stuff that I just, that's why I was always, always wanted to get it right to make them happy. You know, as I mm. started out with that. Well, it's great. And what you said, and I think it's very helpful for all of you guys to, to hear this as you run into ones is that the ones do feel emotion. It's not because the, the external doesn't display it um, or you guys come across as efficient, logical, practical, work first, work hard. But that doesn't mean that underneath there's nothing. It's there. Being a perfectionist, when I married my husband, I thought he had all the answers. He always made quick decisions. And I thought, well, no one, could, you would never make a decision that fast unless you knew it was the right thing to do. And so into about 20 years into my marriage, I found out that he is different. We hadn't do any personality types, nothing. We had no preparation. And so when I found out that he is, I forget what it was, one of the tests, he was a D or something. Anyway, there's goal-driven you just make it. You just make a decision quick because you want to make. You don't care right or wrong. You're making it because you got a goal and you're just going to make the decision. I thought, oh no! All these years, I thought Chuck was doing it because he knew it was the right thing. He just wanted to get oh, get on with the next. <laughs> what a letdown! Huh? I know. Okay. Anyway, I got off. What was what was? Oh yeah. Okay. So today, when I was because I wanted to get it right for tonight. I read over all my notes on the Enneagram. <laughs> and I bet it, no, this is true. It said that um, we make really good teachers and leaders. And I taught school for 20 years. And I thought, you know what? I did a darn good job teaching. I, I really, and I actually like the kids, you know? So I do, <laughs> I do have ability to connect and love people, but I'm just not motivated to go out and just help everybody. I definitely am not a two because I think I have no compassion. But when I meet you and... and <laughs> If I meet you and hear your story, <laughs> then I will have compassion. But for the masses, no. So <laughs> I'm definitely not going to start a trip to some country to help all the people. I don't know. I have to know you and your need, and then I'll take care of you. <laughs> okay. Anyway. <laughs> One thing I just, with the right and wrong, I just want to bring you a little bit on actually turn into the gray on something. Uh, every day I was working with a thoracic surgeon and I had to deal with smokers and my mind smoking bad, black and white, causes lung cancers. I can give you a hundred reasons why you shouldn't smoke. Learning about the gray aspect of addiction and working through communicating that with uh, the patients and becoming more compassionate toward people really it was really eye-opening. I mean, it wasn't just black and white anymore. So it was really a neat process to be able to communicate. Yeah, you deal with that. Every day you wake up, you have to make that decision. Like it's, it's something that it's not black and white. It's, you can't just lecture someone. And I mean, there's, there's more to it. So processing that and learning, not everything is black and white. Mm. Nice. To answer your question a little bit, I, I think definitely for me, when I am left isolated and in my own mind and rationalizing, very much people can become numbers and statistics. And I could care less sometimes. Um, I have the ability to really shut it down because that's how you have to be efficient. If you want to get it done, you can't sit there and you know, hand feed every single person. So you, you understand that there's collateral you know, uh, and efficiency as my friend smiles here. Um, you know, for me, I think like the more that I am in touch with people, I think some of that, I don't know, like intuition thing, the, the caring about people thing, the, uh, the, 
the bigger value, the bigger process, the bigger perfection, or the better part is um, better intimacy and being known and knowing that person. It's not an expectation of a static perfection, but for me, as when I was younger, it was because you know, 18, I knew everything. I could tell you everything. This was the thing, you know. But like the more you're in touch with people, I think, yeah, putting a face and that intuition part in the and the feels and stuff and the emotions, it really helps to. Uh, keep the perfectionism from being just a, a static number or a statistic or an mm-hmm. end goal. Um, the, the God piece has been so, so huge in, in all of it, because I think that that really informs, um, yeah, it's kind of like at the heart of what I want to do and be, there's this motivation of the changing the world that it's the, I'm going to work so hard. Like whatever I ask of you, trust me, I've probably done three times the work. Um, when you ask me a question, I've probably thought and obsessed about that question 10 times over. Um, I've had this dream probably for 10 years, even before I knew how to describe what it was. I mean, it's it's the like, I can't even express like the heart, um, the emotion, the, the thing behind um, all of the work, all the structure, the efficiency, the desire, the drive um, to move forward, um, whatever that forward is. But for me, I think God is really informed what that looks like so that it's not so much about the statistic or about the specific end goal, um, but it's really about, yeah, something else, like a, a wholeness piece. Mm. So, mm. Like that moment when you connect with somebody and they get the thing or something happens, it's like, that is the moment that I'm living for. Like I'm living for that moment right here, right now. Um, and it is an experiential thing. And then the lows are so incredibly low and so incredibly depressive that yeah it's hmm. yeah wow. so it for me it's it's very much a wow. double-edged sword because i i can't picture myself any other way <laughs> i just can't like that this is just the way it is and i just accept it there's no it's not efficient to question why i am this way uh, it it is, and the question is, what do I do with it? You know, or how can yeah? So that's how I process that. Excellent. That's it. Okay. Hey, uh, give give these guys a big hand. This is just awesome that they did this. Um, and uh, what a great job to understand the one more. I learned stuff tonight, you know, and I, I just I appreciate you guys um, opening up and sharing as much as you did tonight. And, what a great night it is. And I think it's, it's just, it allows us to see and hear and then to love, extend more compassion. That's what we're trying to do here is not about, this isn't the process of healing a transformation. That's a different thing that we'll do later on. This is self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And it builds uh, the capacity for us to have compassion for one another, to, to understand, first of all, that the world is very different and much different than you even imagined it, it, it could be. And people are that there's such a, a variety of folks out there. And, um, and so hopefully that's what it does for you is, is it creates more compassion, understanding. Maybe there's a one in your life. Now you're going, ha, huh. because I know what happens, right? You're in these, these kind of sessions and you start thinking, that explains my boss. I think my boss might be a one. I think my boss, and you start to be able to do that. And it also helps you to perhaps relate better with them, um, extend grace to them. So thank you so much and uh, have a fantastic night. Thank you so much for listening. You can find out more about us at www.theartofgrowth.org. That's the place to learn more about our comprehensive training and coaching programs for organizations around team health. And you can also reach out to us there about individual coaching as well. 
And there are many tools on the Art of Growth website to help you on your journey. We'd also encourage you to check out the main Art of Growth podcast. Grace and growth, my friends.